Welcome to Link to Hope, a podcast from Kentucky Cancer Link. I'm your host, Ben Keaton. Until there is a cure for cancer, Kentuckians need hope today. Link to Hope is a monthly podcast featuring experts discussing ways to remove barriers for Kentuckians in need of screening, diagnosis, and treatment for cancers. In this episode, we are diving into the academic side of cancer research and talking with Stephanie Boone from the Department of Epidemiology and Population Health with the Brown Cancer Center. Before we get to the interview, I'd like to bring in Melissa Carr with Kentucky Cancer Link to talk about today's episode. Melissa, the conversation we're about to hear with uh, Stephanie uh, is really fascinating, and I learned a lot about uh, epidemiology uh, and especially cancer epidemiology. Uh, But I thought we would take a quick step back and talk a little bit about um, how you first got connected with Stephanie and the role that her organization plays with Kentucky Cancer Link. Stephanie and I um, met uh, really with her work with the survivorship study that she's doing with the latter study that she'll talk about in the podcast. And, you know, she's one of those people we just hit it off and found out we may have played against each other in college volleyball. And uh, I've just been really impressed with um, her ability to talk about a difficult subject in a way that other people can understand. And um, we're looking forward to continuing to work together. And uh, one of our interns is one of her students. And so we're looking forward to just uh, keeping the conversation going. Well, great. On that note, let's uh, take a listen into what Stephanie has to say. Stephanie, thanks for joining us today. Um, I thought we would start with uh, a fairly obvious question. Um, What is an epidemiologist? Uh, so can you talk a little bit about your work in epidemiology and then specifically what a cancer epidemiologist is? Sure. And thank you for having me today. So epidemiology is a part of public health that plays a key role in cancer prevention and control. And really what we aim to do is describe the distribution of cancer in populations. So that could be cancer incidence or people who develop cancer over time, um, as well as cancer mortality, cancer survival. And what we really want to do is uncover etiologic leads or discover risk factors that may increase risk for cancer um, or the likelihood of cancer development. So epidemiology is involved in all aspects of the cancer control continuum. So that ranges from the basic phases of prevention, early detection and screening, treatment, cancer survivorship, and also end of life. So there are a lot of opportunities within the cancer control continuum to really be able to dive into why Answer, asking questions as to why certain population groups might be at more risk of adverse outcomes when it comes to cancer, as well as um, comparing population groups to better understand why there might be disparities in outcomes. Can you talk a little bit about how you got into this field? What's your, what's your background and what, what drew your interest into cancer epidemiology? So... There are a lot of different opportunities that I have had, and I'm a firm believer in trying to grasp the opportunities that you're given. And while this wasn't necessarily 
my end game um, of becoming a cancer epidemiologist. I didn't, I was introduced to cancer epidemiology while I was in my master's program at the University of Louisville. And so when I was uh, a second year MPH student, my practicum experience was working with the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, where we evaluated the effectiveness of their materials that they were providing for parents and for children affected by leukemia and lymphoma. And so being able to talk with an organization that directly impacts caregivers and patients was eye-opening for me. And uh, I further began my training as a cancer epidemiologist by entering into the PhD program and becoming a coordinator for an epidemiology study where I collected primary data and I was able to talk to patients affected by breast cancer. And so being able to talk with people and understanding that they're behind a data set and behind numbers, these are real people and real experiences. And knowing that people don't always understand how risk is conferred in populations and how that may differ was important to me as I realized that there's more to know about cancer epidemiology and more to communicate to populations about what we find. So I think that while I was also in my training and and going through my graduate degrees, I became involved with multi-state, multi-center consortiums across the United States. So being around like-minded people that are interested in the same things really inspired me to dive deeper into some of these questions, particularly about why there are health disparities in cancer survival and uh, in helping to try to explain health inequalities with cancer outcomes. I think this is really fascinating. You know, I think a lot of people think of fighting cancer as um, a very scientific approach. It's it's finding the next drug. It's finding the next treatment. It's finding that thing that is, is is much better than what we currently have. But what I'm hearing from you is there's another side of this as well, and that's really understanding the data and the science behind why some of these treatment options are effective or why people some people have access to treatment options. Am, am I summarizing that right? And can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes, Ben, that's a great summary. So I think that what people... Uh, clearly think about when they think of research is basic research or clinical research, and that's more based on the individual and how someone may respond to a cancer treatment. And so with population-based research, we're really interested in population health indicators and looking for at-risk populations and what are the causes of at-risk populations. So in reality, where people live, work, play, age, thrive, et cetera, it's it's an important predictor of health outcomes. So with social determinants such as access to care, uh, there's a lot of work that's being done around structural racism, discrimination, stigma, uh, food security, um, food being around uh, a community that doesn't have access to healthy quality foods that are prepared or that like such as raw fruits and vegetables, we call those food deserts. And those are directly correlated with poorer outcomes. So these opportunities, including educational and access to uh, to medical care and to, to quality 
uh, products within their community is is a direct correlation with inequalities in health outcomes. So I think that being able to better understand that populations can be affected by the structural and the social uh, environment that they live in. And so these opportunities uh, can influence how someone can respond to the devastating news that they've been diagnosed with cancer. I do think that part of my research is is gearing towards people's capacity to to respond to a cancer diagnosis and, and in turn change, if needed, any type of health behaviors or or how they actually manage chronic disease is becoming increasingly important. Um, It's inevitable as people age, as age is the strongest risk factor for chronic disease, um, that people will develop um, a chronic disease. But what we're seeing is that this is happening earlier and earlier. And so with that, we see increases in premature mortality. So people dying before, uh, you know, life expectancy, which is closer to 80 now. And we see a higher risk of certain populations dying before 70 because of these risk factors that are more prevalent in at-risk populations. So I think that there are a lot of things that people don't necessarily um, grasp when it when it comes to what it means to, to take a population health and apply it to overall health and well-being within that community and how that might affect the individual person. So if you all are collecting data and um, demonstrating how you know changing behaviors can, can help improve people's outcomes, especially those living with cancer, how do you then make that data actionable? Do you work with the physician community to, to help provide that data? Um, and, and how do patients react to getting that kind of information? So that's a good question. Um, there are a lot of great organizations within Kentucky specifically that are focused on cancer and are who aim to improve health outcomes, to provide resources and support, and really disseminating those results to groups like that and helping to inform on clinical research as well as interventions that could be feasibly employed within populations is going to be um, key. So really being able to disseminate the results in a, in a manner that everyone can understand and, and think about how that translates to a feasible, feasible and actionable plan uh, for implementing in the community is going to be important. So, you know, the proverb, it takes a village, it really applies here when it comes to improvement in population health. And this could be um, from healthcare organizations all the way to grassroots organizations, as well as just the people who are affected themselves. And so we know that um, there are people out there that will seek out the resources that are available, and there are people out there that don't seek it out. It may be because they are not aware of the resources or because, again, as I was saying before, the capacity to be able to respond to a cancer diagnosis. So being able to understand more about 
what those differences are within the populations that seek out versus those that don't um, is going to be important. And that's where my research is leading. Yeah, you've mentioned your research a couple times and um, some studies that you're working on. Can you talk a little bit more detail about um, your specific research and some of the things that you're finding? Yeah, there are uh, a lot of avenues that, that, like I mentioned, that can be evaluated. And in my early career, I began to look at why certain populations were at risk of developing breast cancer compared to other populations. And particularly in the role of genetic susceptibility. Um, My research now has uh, taken a turn to really evaluate within Kentucky populations uh, why there are some health inequalities within the state for cancer survival, cancer mortality, and what is less known, the cancer survivorship experience. And so what that experience is, is it really focuses on living with, through, and beyond a cancer diagnosis. And this focuses on the health and well-being of a person. And so I created the study called the LADDER study. And this stands for Life After Diagnosis and Experiences uh, and Descriptors of Experiences and Responses. It's a mouthful. Epidemiologists love the long acronyms. And so what we are picturing here is a ladder that um, people will climb and sometimes stumble back down in terms of their physical, emotional, mental, and social response to a cancer diagnosis. So within Kentucky, we do see there are differences in mortality rates. There's also differences in um health indicators such as health behaviors that could increase mortality, um, could be continued smoking after a cancer diagnosis, um, it could be uh, less follow-up care, less screening um, for secondary cancers once a cancer diagnosis has occurred. Um, there are, are It's multifaceted what can um, cause differences in cancer mortality. But this study is meant to capture survivorship experience. And so really trying to get at how people cope with a cancer diagnosis, um, health-related quality of life. So this gets at uh, limitations in relation to a cancer diagnosis. This could be social, mental, physical, practical limitations, as well as um, resilience and how people adapt to being um, diagnosed with cancer. And so really trying to understand that cancer experience can also, uh, in turn, help us to kind of understand where some of the unmet needs are in the cancer survivor population. So as treatment improves and people live longer with cancer um, and, and beat, you know, quote unquote, beat cancer, there is a lot to think about in terms of short and long-term side effects. Um, and thinking about the whole person and how how people will live beyond cancer has become increasingly important, particularly because there is survivorship care that oncologists as well as primary care doctors should consider if someone is living with a history of cancer. So there are a lot of organizations that are out there that help Uh, Cancer survivors find resources um, related to side effects, um, as well as support. This could could include um, mental health support and really being able to explain that 
there's not a one size fits all approach to trying to improve health in populations. So the study that I'm working on is really trying to better understand if there are certain profiles that certain things that would predict unmet needs profiles within the cancer survivor population and how important that is to work with the different organizations, particularly if people have different catchment areas and that is people that they're trying to reach and support. So we know that Kentucky is a largely rural state, but there are some large urban centers and people travel all over the state for treatment and support. So these are some things that I'm trying to address within the latter study. It's a purely online study. Um, because of COVID, um, there was a unique situation to uh, develop an online survey to try to reach people. And uh, there are the organizations that I've worked with, including Cancer Link and Friends for Life, Kentucky Cancer Program, the Kentucky Cancer Consortium, as well as University of Louisville, University of Kentucky. Everyone has been uh, very open to sharing the study on social media as well as newsletters. And people can go to the website, kycancersurvivor.org, and enroll and participate. So right now we're interested in people who are diagnosed within the first year, uh, uh, people within the first year of diagnosis. So this would be considered acute survivorship, but we're hoping to have the capacity in the future, the near future, to be able to expand that time since diagnosis to also evaluate some of the needs for longer-term cancer survivors. So the increase in this, this growing population in Kentucky and really all over the nation, um, in the nation, there's approximately 16 million people that are living with a history of cancer right now. So it's a large population. And in, in, in Kentucky particularly, Kentucky's ranked fourth and fifth for men and women in prevalence of cancer survivors. So this is a population that is, is unique and growing and needs attention. Since you're an expert in your field, and I always like to dive into, you know, the things that you find interesting, um, what's something that you have found in your research or in this study that you wish people either knew more about or better understood? I could probably write a book on that. <laughs> what... I think that is important really for people to understand is what is population health, first of all. I think that just because some a population group might be at risk for a poorer outcome, that doesn't necessarily translate to an individual risk. So being able to understand that you are at higher risk, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to, to for instance, not live as long just because the group that you fit in doesn't live as long as a whole. Does that does that make sense? And so really, I think that, for instance, when we're looking at quality of life, one of the things that I have found um, in, in the, the main indicator that cancer centers are looking at is whether or not someone has psychological distress. And so yes or no isn't necessarily going to capture some of the things that are in between. And some of the things that, like I said, it's not an all or none response. And so that indicator is what motivates physicians to refer people for support. 
And so if they're being asked at one time or maybe one or two times whether or not they feel some psychological distress, it's not really capturing some of those details and some of those determinants that might in the long term actually affect someone in a negative capacity. So being able to 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 get at a better capturing someone's response and someone's experience in terms of coping, uh, resilience, and quality of life is going to be important rather than just, am I distressed or not? So I always like to talk about solutions to problems. Um, and, and I think that that there's plenty of, of challenges that, that we face, especially in the cancer community. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the solutions that you see, whether they're policy or societal solutions that can help decrease the incidence of cancer and or help improve outcomes for people who are living with cancer? So as I mentioned, we have uh, the cancer control continuum. So that ranges from prevention all the way to end of life. And so I have a lot of colleagues that are in health management, health policy, and have had a lot of discussions um, in relation to translational work that cancer epidemiologists like myself do, as well as being able to evaluate current data. So one of my colleagues at the University of Kentucky um, Joe Benitez, he's actually looked at whether or not the implementation of the Affordable Care Act decreased incidence of late-stage cancer diagnosis. And because of um, increased access to screening, uh, he did find, specifically in Kentucky, that late-stage incidence of late-stage diagnosis actually went down. So that is an example of effectiveness of a policy and also comparing it to states that did not expand their Medicaid. Uh, and so th that type of work is being done a lot and is really showing um, improvement in population health, is, is including that the, the health policy. But one of the things that we see in, in particular in relation to geographic inequalities and mortality is the lack of access to clinical trials. And so this may not just be because they're not offered within the area, especially in remote areas um, of the state, but also being able to have that health insurance pay a large proportion of um, a, a clinical trial, particularly if that is the only um, opportunity for someone to seek treatment. So there are a lot of... Um, more, there's a lot more work, as I mentioned, being done in survivorship. There isn't necessarily a guideline uh, that is widely used and recognized for survivorship care or the quality of survivorship care. So being able to focus more on after a cancer diagnosis as well is going to be important and being able to uh, help people with access to these types of programs, as well as um, allocating resources to programs that would try to meet the needs um, within the survivorship population. And so really focusing on the quality and access is going to be important. And lastly, um, at the, going back to the beginning of the continuum and prevention, 
bottom line, that's the cornerstone of public health. And we have some great programs that can be leveraged here in Kentucky to gain access to community efforts. For instance, Kentucky Cancer Link, um, the Kentucky Cancer Program. These are state programs that um, are embedded in the communities and uh, do a lot of workshops and a lot of programs to try to reach populations so they can better understand why it's important, for instance, to have their colorectal uh, cancer screening done at a certain age, why it's important to check your skin, why it's important to do self-breast exams, for instance, and really just knowing that risk factors, including health behaviors, are a result of intensity and duration. And people need to understand that. The longer you smoke, the longer that you're in the sun without sunscreen, for instance, um, the longer you're exposed to environmental carcinogens. These are things that um, increase your risk down the road for cancer and unfortunately, premature mortality. So there's a lot of work that's being done across the state for people to recognize that Radon, which is an odorless gas that comes from the ground, is actually correlated and is a risk factor for lung cancer. So there are certain areas in the state where radon is higher. And so there has been some money and some uh, money that has been allocated to, to testing for radon and for helping with mitigation systems um, if someone tests high for a radon. So just getting that information out and allocating resources, not just for things like that, but also for campaigns, educational campaigns is, is going to be key. So in terms of where policy really shapes into that, um, I think that really what it comes down to is making sure that the policies that are set in place include equal access across populations. So whether that means regardless of what type of health insurance you have or regardless of where you live and how far away you are from a treatment center, um, it's going to be increasingly important. So with the mental health um, aspects that, that I'm interested in, we know that there's a mental health shortage or physician shortage in rural areas. And so what can we do to, to help with that? And that, um, you know, with the, with the increase in telehealth, being able to make sure that these, you know, remote populations have access to broadband internet so that they can, you know, do telehealth and have access to that is going to be important. So these types of policies and people that advocate for reducing the inequalities in along the cancer continuum is going to be increasingly important, particularly because Kentucky ranks first in the nation and consistently ranks first for cancer incidence and cancer mortality in the nation. So it's not just inequalities that we see within the state. It's also between Kentucky and the rest of the nation. Stephanie, this has been a really fascinating conversation. So thank you for uh, for sharing your thoughts with us today. Uh, if people want to learn more about um, both your research and your work, uh, can you repeat your website again and point them in the right direction? 
Yes, thanks for having me today. And I would be happy to talk with anyone if if you're interested in, number one, collaborating, um, as well as, um, you know, participating and in, in providing your time and uh and your experience uh, would be greatly appreciated. And my email is stephanie.boone at louisville.edu. And the website is kycancersurvivor.org. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you. Thanks for being a part of our conversation today. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review and share on social media. We are back each month with a new episode. Please join us next time.